fight, mate with the green umbrella. What's it done? Yeah, great fight. You know, I'm soaking wet, freezing cold, stopping hungry, but it's worth it. I got picture and video of the of the gold carriage. I couldn't see Camilla clearly, but I saw some of Camilla. Uh, see, just top of the carriage go past, and that was all really, yeah. I'm afraid. And we're just enjoying the Prosecco. Yes. <laughs> but it's important that we get a voice for a different point of view. I'm just trying to um, see the coronation, but of course the internet's a bit patchy, what with the rain, and I think everyone's trying to do the same thing, but I'm glad that we can listen to it anyway on the um, speakers. Welcome to special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. About the coronation of Charles III. Yes, it's finally the moment he's waited his entire life for. I'm Katie Nichol, Vanity Fair's royal correspondent. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof, staff writer at Vanity Fair. In this episode, we're talking about Coronation Day. I think it's safe to say um, the greatest spectacle, certainly that I've seen in my lifetime. Katie, I know you had a busy Saturday thanks to the coronation. Yes, it was a busy, wonderful and very wet day. I was uh, covering the occasion for NBC News Today show, which was a a great honour. And um, it was a pretty momentous occasion. I've covered royal births, royal weddings, royal funerals. Never a coronation. I, I didn't know what to expect. I think most people watching didn't really know what to expect. But it really was the most amazing show. I mean, they called that part of the Abbey where all the all of the action, as it were, was taking place, the theatre. And I thought, what an appropriate word to use because it felt like theatre. It felt like a show. I know you got up in the middle of the night, Erin, to watch this. I know you had to do it for work, but I think you'd have done it anyway. Yeah. So I watched from the comfort of my apartment at the crack of dawn and posting live updates to VanityFair.com. It was still dark outside when I got up and, you know, made my cup of coffee. Though, honestly, I was so gripped by just even the coverage and the run-up that I let my first cup of coffee get cold. (laughs) Uh, So what did you think of the whole affair? What struck you as most significant? Wow, Erin, there were so many important moments. That, That moment of crowning, seeing the crown held aloft... And, of course, it wasn't just one coronation. It was also the crowning of Queen Camilla. There was the gold state coach, which was glittering despite the rain, which was, by the way, absolutely torrential, just like it was when Elizabeth was crowned queen back in 1953. So hopefully it was a good omen. Erin, what was the standout moment for you? Yeah, it was so much more beautiful than I had expected. I really, I I think that I was just very surprised by by how it did kind of come across as a spectacle. There was so much finery, so many people gathered to watch just a beautiful, beautiful religious ceremony. And of course, incredible music, all chosen by King Charles himself, who has great taste. I was When I was watching this, I think that I was paying a lot of attention to the moments where you know, modern modern society, modernity kind of comes into contact with these ancient things. 
by the power of the same Spirit, grant that this holy oil may be for thy servant Charles a sign of joy and gladness. The oldest part of the ceremony is the anointing, which actually dates back to the 7th century, which is one of those things that I feel like is just very <laughs> hard to put into context. You know, that, that that is one thing that's been happening to a person who's called themselves the King of England for, you know, more than 1,300 years. There are so few things that have been as consistent as that. I think that there was something very special about putting it behind those screens, though the screens themselves are really beautiful. I know that they took uh, an embroidery team like many, many, many hours to put together. Mm. And this was Charles's decision, and I think it was absolutely the right decision, was that that moment of anointing, which was, of course, the most sacred part of the entire service, because that is that is the king making his oath to God. It, it is a deeply religious and deeply profound moment. Of course, that was the moment that we didn't see. And, and I think in an age of, of iPhones, and technology capturing every single moment. To have that kept as sacred was a really lovely move. When Zadok the priest started, you know, of course I wasn't in the abbey, I was I was outside, but you could just feel the the impact and, and the emotion of that music. I mean, the music, wow, the music was incredible. There were, there were just so many lovely moments. And you, you talked about that sort of blend of, of ancient ceremony and modernity. But I, I think actually that moment of, um, of crowning was really quite breathtaking. God save the king! The, the fact that the order of service was there, well, people really could be a part of it if indeed they wanted to say the people's homage. And of course, that was very controversial. That was something that was very new to this coronation, completely unique um, and deeply controversial. The idea that the people in Britain, and let's not forget that the king has is king of 14 other Commonwealth realms, were being asked to pledge allegiance to the king and really did get, you know, got people talking. It was controversial. And in fact, there was a bit of a U-turn just before the coronation itself when um, the Lambeth Palace made it clear that actually what they were saying, and I think the wording that's in the final order of service is it was an invitation <laughs> yes, to make yes. that people's homage. I now invite those who wish to offer their support to do so with a moment of private reflection by joining in saying, God save King Charles at the end, or for those with the words before them to recite them in full. I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God. I think that sat with people far more comfortably than, than being told that they were to, um, to, to swear an oath to the king. Erin, I have to ask you, did you pledge allegiance to the king in front of your television? <laughs> it's very funny because in the US, you know, we do pledge allegiance to our flag every yes. day in school. And it's one of those things that is so comically controversial. I'm just one of those people that doesn't like to like pledge allegiance to anything. So I was always definitely a little like I was the intransigent kid in the corner who was like, I'll stand, but I'm not going to say it. But like it's mm -hmm. it's the subject of a lot of like legal challenges in the U.S. because, um, you know, of 
you know, separation in church and state and things like that. So it was kind of funny to like to realize that the, you know, that the archbishop didn't quite realize that it was going to be a <laughs> a controversial ask to make. So we had the help of producer Emily Elias to get a sense of what people in London were thinking of on Saturday. 100% for it, yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, what makes Britain great, I suppose, you know. It's for the union. So, yeah, being, being from Scotland, it's a bit of a divide at the moment. So, uh, aye, we need Great Britain needs to be together, you know what I mean? So you'll see on the other half of my sign, it says, I will pay true allegiance to survivors of sexual abuse. So that's what I might be saying instead. To swear allegiance to this man who's become our head of state without us having a say in the matter. This country has the arrogance to call itself the mother of democracies. That is not democratic. Dynasty will be back right after a short break. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Prince William, you know, I think that he had the ultimately a, a, a new starring role in that ceremony. So why did they kind of choose to elevate him so much in that part of the ceremony? Well, as Prince of Wales, um, you know, William hasn't had um, an investiture of his own. And in, in fact, this almost felt like a little investiture within the coronation to me, because what he said is, I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you. And faith and truth I will bear unto you as your liege man of life and limb. So help me God. Now, those words, your liege man of life and limb, Charles delivered to the Queen at his investiture at Carnarvon Castle. And they are the words that Prince Philip delivered to the Queen on her coronation. And really what it means is I am your most loyal servant. I am your most trusted supporter. And that was that was a very, very important moment for Prince William. I found that incredibly moving. And I and I wondered whether he was going to kiss his father, um, possibly on the hand, but in the end, he kissed him on the cheek. And you could see that that left Charles deeply touched. And I thought that was a very, very special moment. I think in general, the, the scene of William, uh, you know, kneeling as... Uh, Catherine in her incredible mantle of the Royal Victorian Order with the, you know, sort of the floral headpiece in her hair and Charlotte in a matching dress, Louis, George off to the side. I think that that family moment was really one of the things that I think made it the most touching and tender uh, a ceremony, like not just a religious ceremony or a ceremony that involved ministers, but also the family ceremony. Mm. And what do you think that this says about the importance of the Wales family in the way that the monarchy is positioning itself? Well, that they they take centre stage alongside the king and queen. I mean, it's it was interesting because I I'm sure you saw the king and the queen waiting in their carriage in the um, diamond state carriage because 
actually the Wales family hadn't turned up on time. Possibly possibly the procession had moved a little faster than intended, but there was a moment, well, several minutes actually, where Charles and Camilla were seated in the carriage outside. Now, that resulted in William and Kate, Louis and Charlotte processing behind the king into the abbey. Now, I don't know if that was part of the original script, but actually I think it worked very well because what it showed was the the importance of William and Kate as the king and queen's chief supporters, this new sort of fab four, and of course, the future. You know, here is the line of succession. You saw Prince George as a page to the king, something he did absolutely flawlessly. He was wonderful. And uh, to see Charlotte and Louis as well. I mean, this was the first big state occasion that all three children have attended. Um, It must have been a bit of a heart-stopping moment at points for for William and Kate. Um, You know, they really, you have to take your hat off to them because having a five-year-old, I have a a son the same age, having a five-year-old in the Abbey and expecting them to sort of sit still and not fidget through two-hour ceremony is ambitious at best. I would say almost (laughs) impossible. So there was a very clever plan in place, which was to sort of discreetly um, whisk Louis out of the service just as soon as it started. And in fact, he was on such good behaviour and seemed to be enjoying it so much and taking it all in that he was actually allowed to stay a little longer until the point, I think, when he was seen yawning and um, he was he was squirrelled quietly away. <laughs> but brought back for the final part of the service in the national anthem and what a what a magical moment for him to witness and don't forget charles was just a little bit younger he was 4 when he mm-hmm. was there to witness his mother's coronation and so i think for william and kate you know with all the risks that came with bringing a 5 year old into the abbey it was the right thing to do because louis witnessed that moment not just george louis charlotte and george were all there to be a part of it and i think for the king very important. I loved exactly how much Louis looks exactly like his grandfather at when he was in the coronation, the the wide eyes, the the haircut. But I, I also love I think that, you know, he it's it's nice to have him as a bit of an audience proxy. <laughs> I think that he's I think especially, you know, among uh, Americans who love the who one of the things that we love about the Royals, you know, for a, a lot of us like me is that we do love the kids. And it is um, it is very wonderful that he is, you know, been so good at I think like, you know, having the being being a little bit of comic relief in the moments where that is is allowed. And I was like I was really impressed when, you know, we had talked about this plan that like, oh, wow, you know, it's like them understanding that it's an important moment and that it's not just that, you know, they're afraid that it's not that he'll they're afraid that he'll get too much attention, but mainly just that like, you know, he's a kid and he deserves to not have to like, you know, be quiet for like three hours. Well, it was it was wonderful to have children, not just in the Abbey, but part of the ceremony. And of course, Camilla had um, her grandchildren there as well. And uh, she had the, the names of her children and grandchildren actually stitched into her beautiful Bruce Oldfield dress. And, and her two little rescue dogs too, which I thought was lovely. It was a sense of wanting to keep them close throughout. But I think we must touch briefly on the symbolism and the importance of Camilla being crowned. As I said earlier, this wasn't just the crowning of the king. We had two crownings. And um, I know from the New Royals and all the research I put into that and the people I spoke to who have known Camilla for many, many years, that she was never bothered about the title of being Mm -hmm. queen. And frankly, 
possibly at the age of 75. This isn't how she expected her life to pan out, but she is queen because it is what Charles always wanted. And as we know from these two, this is a story of love and devotion and she will do anything for him. And I I think to see her crowned really was quite a moment. When I started this job, Erin, nearly 20 years ago, the idea that Camilla would be queen was a story I never thought I would be writing. She is in that position now because in a really meaningful way, she earned it. Uh, You know, after the wedding, when she did become a, a working royal in a really formal sense, she has really distinguished herself in that position. I think she's one of the most outspoken people on the issue of domestic violence, which is something that the UK has, I think, really struggled to talk about in, you know, for generations. She has just, like, emerged as a figure who's really light and funny and, you know, very no-nonsense, even in a family where people can occasionally be a little dramatic. And I think that there is a sense that... She is there because she works really well with King Charles and that she's an asset to the nation, if that makes sense. Perhaps she won't just be Queen Camilla, perhaps she'll also become the nation's grandmother. May thy servant Camilla, who wears this crown, be filled by thine abundant grace and with all princely virtues. Reign in her heart, O King of love, that being certain of thy protection... I loved the moment when they put the crown on Camilla's head and she kind of had to wipe away her bangs because they were going to stick to her forehead. Yeah. That was... Don't muck up my hair. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm just so pleased that everything went well on the day because historically there have been mishaps at, at coronations. <laughs> yes. I mean, Queen Victoria's finger was nearly broken when the Archbishop tried to force the coronation ring onto the wrong finger. And back in 1603, at the coronation of James I, there was a minor earthquake. So um, a little bit of rain, or rather a lot of rain, let's be honest, um, wasn't, going to, wasn't going to dampen anyone's spirits. And what was so wonderful, um, as I was coming into London to report, were the crowds and the colour of their outfits and what they were wearing and their flags that they were waving. Uh, It it was wonderful. I mean, the umbrellas did go up because the rain was absolutely torrential. (laughs) You know, the most British thing possible for the coronation morning would be a lot of rain. It would would almost be disturbing if it was too sunny. So... (laughs) Well, of course, the weather did prove a bit of a problem when it came to the fly past, and that had to be scaled back. Katie, one question that I had for you is, I, you know, ever since the, you know, the late queen passed away, we've been kind of hearing that the coronation was going to be scaled back. It wasn't going to be too big. Why do you think that it turned out to be, uh, you know, not exactly the scaled back coronation that some people had been, you know, anticipating? Well, I I think we Brits are very good at doing ourselves down. But actually, when the moment comes, so many people get behind it and get involved. And I I think when it comes to the reports of it being scaled down, I think people misinterpreted a sort of financial scaling down. Well, the whole thing's going to be short on pomp and pageantry. And of course, that was never going to be the case. And I remember being told by a palace aide, you know, people have got it wrong. If they think they're not going to see the best military procession, the biggest military procession of their lives, just you wait and see. And of course, that person was absolutely right. Some 7,000 troops took part in what was the biggest military procession staged in this country uh, for 70 years. And it really was quite a quite a sight to behold. The horses were just 
incredible. Everything was in step. Everything was in time. The moment where they had to get through the arches at Trafalgar Square, they sort of came into lockstep and and that um, narrowed enough so that they could get through was amazing to watch. There were also 400 troops from the Commonwealth realms and I, I think to see the Commonwealth represented like that was was really special as well. It was an incredible sight to witness, and I think anyone that was there, even if you were watching it on the television, you will always remember those those images. It was it was just so incredible to see. So it was a wonderful mixture, I think, of of ancient ceremony, everything that we would expect of a coronation with some wonderful modern fresh twists and Erin you and I were talking about the music and we know that Charles is a great lover of of classical music he's a man who's been known to be reduced to tears when he listens to opera and I think you could see his influence in that music and it really was stunning it was a just a, a concert and a treat for the senses. To me that was the the part that really brought home why this is such an important thing for us or why is this thing that a society should be trying to do is just the music was incredible. Um, you know, so many different so many different types of choirs. Before everything started, Pretty Yende, who is this amazing soprano from South Africa who sings with the uh, Berlin Opera right now, she did a new composition. And feed As always, I think that this is especially a kind of joke in American churches that it's like, you know, every time they try to toss in like a new composition with like the old music, you wind up getting like, you know, something that's like a little jarring, doesn't quite work. But I think that it it was such a good reflection of the fact that uh, King Charles really does, is really passionate. He personally... Uh, he personally apparently reached out to the Ascension Gospel Choir, which I think was the mm. most standout moment. That Loved was the- that. Yeah, the moment that was most unlike, uh, you know, the last coronation, but I think really does did reflect, I think, what things are like in worship in the Anglican Church now. Absolutely. And talking about the Anglican Church, it was interesting, wasn't it, to see female bishops involved in a coronation for the very first time? I mean, that has never happened before. And that inclusion of faith leaders, um, I found that deeply moving. And, And the many people who presented the king with those priceless instruments of coronation, the the regalia that we saw in in all of its sparkling splendour. And also what was so special was the congregation, because it, it was made up of so many ordinary people. There were so many peers and lords, ladies, barons, earls at the coronation back in 1953. This was a completely different assembly of people, people who had served the country, people who make this country tick and work the way that it does, those who have received the order of the British Empire, you know, the NHS workers who got us through the pandemic and the volunteers who do so much to help our society. There were so many representatives there and I think that felt very, very special. It felt like a people's coronation and I think inclusivity and diversity were at the heart of what Charles wanted. And I think he achieved that. Dynasty will be right back after a short break. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfeg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions, and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Families seem to be such an important part of yesterday's coronation for all the pomp and pageantry, the ceremony and everything else. The royals were surrounded by their nearest and dearest. Now, of course, Harry was there. He had confirmed that he would be coming in and we understood he'd be coming in and leaving Britain pretty quickly, which is exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. He was seated on the third pew, uh, sitting behind his aunt Anne, whose large hat obscured Harry, actually, for most of the ceremony. And he was sort of relegated to the third row, just a few seats away from Uncle Andrew, of course, the other black sheep of the royal family, um, seated with his cousins. Erin, what did you make of, of, of Harry's appearance? Do you think he looked happy? Do you think it was right that he was seated in the third row? And were you surprised that we didn't see him up on the balcony? So, you know, I think it's it's very funny. You know, I've been joking for the last couple of weeks that, you know, I've been brushing up on all of my coronation history, but maybe it's time for me to be studying my body language again. Or your lip reading. Or your lip reading, reading. That's always a useful thing on these occasions. Seriously. You know, I didn't do any of that, but I feel in a certain way I didn't really need it. Uh, I think that, yeah, you you could tell that Harry... You know, he had the moments where he was having a good time. He had the moments where you could tell he, he it was a long ceremony and he was, you know, being blocked by a wonderful bicorn hat. On William and Charles's face, they you can see that they are they are both really trying in these moments. They've been practicing not showing their emotion and instead having this sort of, you know, dignified face. And I think that Harry has done that in the past at these events, but I feel like you can tell he does seem a little bit more at home when he is able to just be a spectator. Like that's, I feel like that's what I kind of came away from that, that it made me really, it made me sad because I, when when William kneeled down, like the first thing I thought is like, you know, imagine five years ago thinking that, William plays this huge role in the coronation and Harry is just off in the third row and he did mouth the people's homage when that came up. He did those, the, you know, pledging allegiance to Charles. And I think that that was a nice, a nice moment. But yeah, I think that there is a sense that something real has been lost but I mean, I think emotionally Harry is is dealing with it pretty pretty well, though I think it can't be great that the cousins are the only people who speak to him. As sad as it is to see him leave so quickly, you know, he had a, a smile and a bit of a laugh with uh, Eugenie and Jack Brooksbank, her husband, as he was leaving and then he was gone. So sad as that was, I was glad to hear that he made it home, you know, with, with some time to spare in L.A. yesterday. 
And I I couldn't also could not help but, you know, be a little bit sad that the members of the family who are people of color were not there. It, it's it's like one of those things that it makes perfect sense when you're thinking about it, but at the same time, it just you think about how great would it be if everything was different and we could have had the Duchess of Sussex there. Like, you know, it, it, there was no chance that she was going to go, but it, it would have felt kind of nice. Well, I think it was it was absolutely vital that Harry was at the coronation. He is Charles's youngest son. Whatever's happened, I know that Charles still loves his son dearly. A place was set at the table at Buckingham Palace. The family had an informal lunch yesterday um, after the balcony appearance and the fly past. And of course, that, that place setting was, was taken away as, as soon as it was realised that Harry wasn't going to be going back to the palace and, and straight onto the airport. So I, I think it's a great shame. I think the moments for reconciliation are going to, from now on, be few and far between. But I think... It must be a source of great sadness for the king that while his son was there, there, there was no real time for any conversations or, or any moment actually to celebrate the day that, that Charles has waited his entire life for. One thing I was very surprised by yesterday uh, is just like how cool Princess Anne looked and was. Uh, she got to wear her military uniform because she had a service, I mean, a part of the service where she was... Um, you know, in using leading the Blues and Royals, part of the household cavalry. Um, and instead of a lot of other family members who wore the uh, Order of the Garter, which are those blue robes, she went for the Order of the Thistle mantle, which is green, looked great, the bicorn hat, so cool. And she then, instead of being in a carriage with her husband on the procession, she rode right behind the gold state coach on horseback because she was serving as the gold stick in waiting, which is sort of the ceremonial role of the monarch's chief protection. Like the original protection officer was the the gold stick. And I loved the symbolism of that. And I just think I love that she and Camilla together are really taking on the role of like cool older lady that I think makes the queen such an icon with my generation. So I really am glad that they're leaning into it. Well, Princess Anne has been such an important part of Charles's life, you know, as his younger sister. And all these years later, now that he is king, she is still there, as you say, as his chief supporter, as his bodyguard, essentially, on the day of the coronation. And she was absolutely, absolutely magnificent. She did make an interesting observation about the royal family in an interview that she gave a couple of days before the coronation service, in which she questioned the wisdom of slimming down the royal family too much. And I think the point that she was making was if the royal family is going to continue in it in anything that resembles its current guise i.e carrying out thousands of engagements every year then it's going to need some serious man and woman power behind yeah. it and i think the moment i was waiting for in all of this was to see who was up on that balcony because that was so telling a wave to the crowd and the crowd waves back if you think back to the Queen's Diamond Jubilee celebrations in 2012, there was a real change in that balcony appearance. You had the Queen, Duke of Edinburgh was unwell in hospital, and you had Charles and Camilla, William and Kate and Harry. And it was an absolutely pivotal moment. This was Charles showing the projection of what he saw the monarchy being in the future. It was very telling 
that after his coronation, after being crowned, making that all-important balcony appearance, his first as king, he chose to have not just, you know, the, the new Fab Four, William and Kate and their kids, he did have all working members of the royal family. And I just wonder if that's an indication of where we're going to go in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was It was a really beautiful moment. So the one thing that I think I do w- was definitely interested in hearing your opinion on Katie is that as or at least you know your perspective on is the arrests of the anti-monarchist protesters that made the news like I know at least you know among young people you know younger people my age here in the U.S. like that was definitely a thing that we were talking about a lot so Mm -hmm. you know what did you kind of make of that? Well, to be completely honest, Erin, it's only just really becoming a talking point now. I think everyone was so focused on the coronation that it didn't dominate news headlines. I think it's going to become a bigger issue over the next few days. Were the police overzealous? How peaceful was this protest? These are the details I'm sure you and I will be able to discuss um, on the next episode of Dynasty. But I think it's fair to say that arrest is, frankly, publicity money just can't buy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's Although got everyone. It's got everyone talking. We're talking. We're t- it does. We're talking about it, and um, you know, I think I think we have to wait and see and learn learn more details about it. We knew that there were going to be protesters, and you know, Britain is a country of of free speech. Protest is. Um, not just tolerated, but encouraged. You know, when he was Prince of Wales, he said he completely understood why people were protesting about him becoming Prince of Wales. So I think we have to wait for more details to come out. And I'm sure it's going to be um, a very interesting talking point for us next week. Mm-hmm. Well, I would I would love to hear, you know, because I know that you were out on the ground too, Katie. What did you kind of, what did the energy feel like, at least to the people you were talking about? Did it Did it seem like the country was getting behind Charles? Yes, I mean, I did a bit of a walkabout on the Friday and chatted to some of the people on the mall, some of those who'd been waiting for hours, some who'd been camping out. And the sense I got was that people wanted to witness this moment, that they were they were part of history. They absolutely had a ringside seat. I just think it's amazing. Like, do you know I mean, how everyone had come together as like one big family and it's just amazing. I like him, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, we've all had our ups and downs with him, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, he's, he stood by the monarchy, stood by the Queen, um, and Camilla stayed by his side. Uh, we, we arrived at half past midnight last night, and uh, we were up at back of five this morning to come in, so it's been a long day. Yeah, well, we've seen, obviously, the, the, the King's Guards and the horses and the... We see the top of the carriage and that going by. So within the family, it means a lot. The royal family. My mother came here when she was nine, and I just thought it'd be nice to follow on the tradition. Um, and I love the royal family, and I think they work very hard, and I'm here to support them. And I get it. Yeah, there's people who are not for it, but that's just a viewpoint, right? I'm the other way. There's a there's a serious point to the monarchy and what it says about our country. You know, we're supposedly one of the leading democracies in the world, and yet. We're one of the few that says that being born is a qualification for power. You know, even though I'm, I like the monarchy, I think Charles has done quite well in, in kind of doing things for people who are working class as the Prince of Wales. So I just hope, you know, that continues through his son, which I think it will. A plan for the rest of the day is to take in the atmosphere, join in. We've chatted to lots of people today, policemen, lots of people we've sat with the security people new york we've met lots of people and we're gonna stay up here for the day walk around and mingle and then have a few drinks i i think 
the support for Charles is there. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done, um, particularly among the younger generation. And yet... I saw a sea of young faces um, while I was down there on the palace for the days that I was reporting. And I think that's all really, really encouraging and a positive picture for Charles. I did speak to a source close to the king before the coronation. I was told that he was very excited about it and that he feels very optimistic about the future. Well, Katie, both the coronation and talking to you were just as much fun as I hoped they would be. Yeah, Erin, it was an amazing day. And of course, the celebrations continue. And we have another episode next week to talk about what happens next. No small question. I can't wait. Me either. We want to know your thoughts on the coronation of King Charles III. Did you mark the event? And if so, how? What did you think of it? What kind of king will Charles be? Record a voice memo on your mobile and email it to dynasty at vanityfair.com and we might include your voice in the next episode. This has been special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. Dynasty is produced by Vanity Fair and Condé Nast Entertainment. This episode was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Walter Nordquist and Mike Kutchman. Emily Elias provided on-the-ground reporting from London. The theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are staff editorial consultants. And you can listen to all the previous episodes of Dynasty wherever you get your podcasts and also online at vf.com forward slash dynasty. Thanks so much for listening. Katie, should we say it together? Long live the king. Uh, I'm wearing a very loud Union Jack suit and the button has broken off my trousers <laughs> and I look like a bit of a prat. <laughs> what are you going to tell the kids at school? I saw the king, but they won't believe me. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 